You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And uh, today, Archbishop Sheen will give a reflection on the pre-Christian world. And there was a world before Christ entered the world. And um, again, I think we have to understand history. And uh, Bishop Sheen will give us a little bit of a history lesson today. And of course, uh, just uh, share with us how God loves us so much that he sent his son to save us. And he's also going to talk about uh, treasures in pots. And uh, some of you may have heard this conversation before, or this talk, uh, but it's always a classic talk about uh, treasures in pots. And we all know the title of Archbishop Sheen's autobiography, Treasures in Clay. And so it will be a fabulous program today. So may I encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, during the past week there was a sailor who sent a telegram to the captain of a ship saying, I just met an angel who will report in 72 hours. And the captain of the ship sent back a wire saying, send the angel to Bishop Sheen, you report immediately. <laughs> and not very long ago, our good friend Milton Burrow said, uh, both Bishop Sheen and I use old material. But tonight I'm going to use much older material than he could ever delve into. You know, someone every now and then boasts that I have an absolutely new idea. There are three answers to that. One is treat it kindly as in a strange place. The other is beginner's luck. And the third and good answer is go back and see how the Greeks put it. And tonight we're going back to see how the Greeks put it and how all the ancients put it. Very often a child, of course, when Christmas season comes around, will look forward with anticipation to that feast. And what happens in the mind of a child has actually happened to the whole human race. And tonight we're going to make a survey of a thousand years of pre-Christian history. And we will delve into the yearnings and the hopes and the aspirations and anticipations of some of the great people of the past. 
We will begin with the Greeks, going back, I say, a thousand years before the Christian era. Then we will discuss some of the Eastern people, then the Romans and their civilization, and finally, the civilization of the Hebrews. Each in turn. First of all, the yearning and anticipation of the Greeks. One of the greatest epic poets who ever lived was Homer. And Homer wrote two great works, one called the Iliad and the other the Odyssey. The Iliad was the story of a defeated king. And the Odyssey, the story of a sorrowful woman. The real hero of the Iliad was not Achilles, but the defeated king Hector. Achilles clad in the armor of the god Vulcan, defeated Hector and then dragged his body after his chariot. And then one at night, aged Priam, the father, went into the tent of the victor. And the poem ends with a glorification of the king who went down to defeat. Then he also wrote the Odyssey. The story of Odyssey, who was traveling around the world for 20 years. While he was away, his wife was courted by many suitors. And many of them asked to marry her, and she said, when she finished weaving this particular garment, that she would then decide on a suitor. The suitors did not know that each night, Penelope undid the stitches which she put in in the daytime and remained faithful until Odyssey returned. And the poem was the glorification of this tragic woman whom Homer called the most sorrowful woman. And into the current of Greek literature was thrown the story of a king who was made great in defeat and a woman who was sad and not anyone understood the meaning of that until a thousand years later when a king would be defeated and still be victorious and the sorrowful woman would be benign and worthy of veneration and respect. And then coming 600 years before the Christian era, we come to the great dramatist Aeschylus. We spoke about his Prometheus bound uh, last week. And in this story, you remember Prometheus is bound to a rock. He has stolen fire from heaven, and an eagle comes and devours his entrails. Maybe a symbol of modern man. Not whose entrails are being devoured by an eagle, but whose mind and heart are uneasy, devoured, as it were, by anxieties and fears, neuroses and psychoses. And throughout these years that I am describing these thousands of years, there was this yearning for some kind of deliverance from guilt, some plea for a great wisdom that might come. And finally, Hermes speaks to Prometheus and says, Look not for any end, moreover, to this curse, until some god appears, who accept upon his head the pangs of thy own sins, thy captives. A few centuries later, the great Socrates. And in the second dialogue with Alcibiades, we read that one day, Alcibiades was about to go into the temple 
And he came to Socrates, the wise man, and he said, What shall I ask of the gods? And Socrates said, Wait. Wait, he said, for a wise man who is to come will tell us how we are to conduct ourselves before God and man. Now Thabide, said, I'm most anxious to know this man. When will he come? Socrates said, I know not. But certainly not until the fog has been cleared away from our minds. Now Thabides said, I desire to do everything that he wills. And Socrates said, he wills good things for you. This is the current of Greek literature. Man looking for another wisdom than the earthly. Some kind of release from his inner guilt. And then we come to the Eastern peoples. And these great religions of the East that we hear so little about, great indeed they are in the natural order. For example, Hinduism. The Hindus desire some kind of what they call an avatar, namely one of their many gods that might come down to this earth, like a Krishna, would be a kind of a god becoming a man, like the god Gita, becoming a brother, but most of all, the great Brahma, who would come to save man from Kaliga, the serpent of evil. And then the great Confucius, the wisdom of China. Confucius said, the true wise man will come from above and he will have all power in heaven and on earth. And then more remarkable still, Buddha. One day he was talking to his, the six centuries before Christ, he was talking to his friend Anada, and he said to Anada, I am not the light. There will be other Buddhas beside me. The kingdom of truth will not come for five hundred years. And then will come the true Buddha, whose name will be Matriya, which will mean love. And this current of expectation that we find in the Greeks, that we find in the Eastern people, and their sacrifices, for example, pouring out blood as if blood in some way had been associated with guilt, and they felt that by releasing that they might release their own guilt. All of this was the yearning. Then comes more remarkable yearning still, the Romans. Great Latin writers like Suetonius, Cicero, Tacitus. Remember how hard Tacitus was in college? And Tacitus writes that there is a universal belief that the great wise man will come from Judea. And Suetonius, writing at the beginning of the Christian era, said that the time that was foretold by the Sibyls, they were some of the prophets of these pagan peoples, the time foretold by the Sibyls, the 1,000th saculum of Apollo has come. And Cicero arose one day, and in one of those great magnificent orations, 
He said, we are told, he said, by the Sibyls, that we must accept the king who alone can save us. But he said, I asked the Sibyls. And then the Cicero put it, in quem hominem. In other words, in what man, who will he be, and at what time? In quem hominem. Maybe another Roman answered Cicero. The day that this other Roman said, H.A. Homo. Behold the man. And greater still, Virgil. Virgil in his fourth eclogue. Here he was quoting the Sibyls. Particularly the Sibyl of Cuma. In his fourth eclogue he wrote, The last day foretold by Cuma's seer is come. A mighty role of generations new is now reborn. Justice now returns. And from high heaven descends a worthier race of men. Smile, taste, Lucina. Taste, Lucina. Smile on thy infant boy. Then this famous line, then a Virgil. In she pay, begin. Little boy, Harvey Poer, begin, little boy. Resume with a smile, cognoscere, to know thy mother. That written in the year 31 B.C. in the fourth eclogue of Virgil. And now, as these expectations multiply, we come to the greatest of them all. The greatest of them all, of course, is that of the Hebrews. You remember that the great Hebrew civilization was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon in the year 586. Nebuchadnezzar took back with him into Babylon one who was called the wisest and the most handsome of the Jews. His name was Daniel. And the book of Dinosaur had a dream one night. And the dream that he had, he was unable to interpret nor any of, any of his wise men. And I wish I could draw you something like unto which that he saw, but I can't draw, so tonight I'm going to ask my angel very quickly to do a drawing on the blackboard for me. And that'll save me a lot of trouble, and then you will know later on what I'm talking about. So my little angel would do the drawing. It only takes a second for an angel to do a drawing. And there it is. This, this is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar for the king. He saw a great and tremendous colossus. See how big he is? These are men down here. And the head was of gold. And the shoulders and arms were of silver. The thighs were of brass. 
the legs, the feet of iron and clay. And a great stone hewn from the mountain without hands came down from the mountains and crushed as this statue and struck it at the feet of clay and ground it into dust. What was the meaning of it? The sages could not tell. It was one with all of this expectation of the world for a thousand years. Daniel interpreted, and he said, These are the kingdoms that will divide the world until the coming of the expectatio gentium, the coming of the expected one of the world. The empire of gold, he said, is you, Babylon. You will fall. You will be devoured by the empire of silver, the empire of silver by the empire of brass, the empire of brass by the empire of iron and clay. And in the year 536, Cyrus of the Medes and Persians came to this great fortified city of Babylon, 16 miles square, 16 gates of solid bronze, he was giving entrance to it. He turned aside the waters of the Euphrates that ran through the center, and then went out of the dry bed of the river, and that night Balthazar was slain at his feet, and the empire of gold was devoured by the empire of silver. Then there came the beginning now of a new empire, the empire of brass, which was that of Greece. And there arose a young man, only twenty years of age, one of the greatest generals the world ever knew, Alexander. And he went out to do battle with one of the successors of Cyrus, Darius III. One night, one of his lieutenants came to him and he said, The army is asleep. Strike and you will win. And think of it. Alexander said, It is not fair to fight at night. He waited until daytime. And then in the first great war between Europe and Asia, Alexander won, and the great civilizations now began to pour westward over all of Europe, beginning with Greece. And Alexander died at the age of 33 with no more worlds to conquer. And there arose, short time after that, the new empire which was Rome, the empire it was commanded over for the time being by Consul Mumius, who defeated the outposts of the Ligurian power in Corinth near 146 B.C. They said that for ten days they burned the city of Corinth. The soldiers of Rome used to use the great works of art as their target. Finally, Rome was master of the world. There was only one official language in the world. It was Latin. There was only one capital in the world. It was pagan Rome. There was only one emperor. And it was Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus sits at his desk along the banks of the Tiber. Before him is a map labeled Orbs Terrarum Imperium Romanum, the circle of the earth, the Roman Empire. The whole world was his. He decided to take up a census. The temple of Janus, which he could see from his window, was closed. 
temple that was opened generally in times of war in order to pray for successive arms it might now have been clogged with bodies, but in any case, there was peace. Therefore, the census, and out to every governor, out to every satrap, out to every province, out to every tetrarch, goes the order. Everyone, everyone enroll in his own city. Tens of thousands of preachers set in motion all over the world, obeying the mandate of a single man. Little did he know that he, this imperial bookkeeper of the Tiber, who was actually fulfilling a prophecy that was made by the great Hebrew Matthias 500 years before, and out Bethlehem at the least of the cities. And out of thee will he come forth, will be the captain. The notice that finally posted the tree in a little village of Nazareth, a village carpenter and a maid read it, and since they belong to the defunct royalty, namely the defunct royalty of the family of David, whose city was Bethlehem, they had to journey to Bethlehem. And to Bethlehem they go. There was no room in the inn. The inn is the gathering place of public opinion. So out to the stables they go. And there rings out a cry. A gentle cry. A cry of a newborn babe. The sea could not hear the cry. But the sea was filled with its own voice. The great ones of the earth could not hear the cry. For they could not understand how a God could be greater than a man. Shepherds and wise men came and they saw a babe. A babe whose tiny hands were not quite long enough to touch the huge heads of the cattle. And yet hands that were steering the reins that keep the sun and moon and stars in their courses. Baby lips that did not speak. Baby lips that might have articulated the secrets of every living man that hour. And under that brow was beating a mind and an intelligence compared to which the combined intelligences of Europe and America amount to naught. Baby feet that did not walk, not just because they were baby feet, but because those baby feet could not bear the weight of divine omnipotence. Eternity in time. Omnipotence in bonds. God in the form of man. The bird that built the nest is hot therein. The earnings of Buddha, Confucius, of Aeschylus, of Virgil, of Socrates, of Plato. All of these yearnings were now realized along with the Sibyls at this particular moment when there is born the one who made for us the priest of Christmas. The child in a foul's table, the wild beast's feeds and talks. Only for he 
he was homeless. For you and I at home. In Jibay, Harvey Poirier. Weasel. Begin, little child, to recognize thy mother with a smile. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at one 866 357 4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. The last conference on the Holy Hour suggested a break in the routine of priestly life. And it really will mark the difference between just being an ordinary priest and a very saintly priest. As Shakespeare put it in his Julius Caesar, there is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. Omit it, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we afloat, and we must take the current when it seems or lose the venture. And because it represents, holy hour, a tremendous break, I'm going to talk about that in terms of our greatness and our littleness. St. Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, describes us well. He said, We are no better than pots of earthenware to contain this treasure. We're pots. Earthen pots containing a treasure. There are times when we priests 
concentrate perhaps on the pot and begin to despair. Then when we think about the treasure we have, we're full of hope. And I'm going to carry through this analogy of the pot and its treasure and how the pot is enriched. But let me finish this passage of St. Paul and notice the beauty of this translation of the New English Bible. We are no better than pots of earthenware to contain this treasure, and this power proves that such transcendent power does not come from us, but is God's alone. Hard-pressed on every side, we are never hemmed in. Bewildered, we are never at our wit's end. Hunted, we are never abandoned to our fate. Struck down, we are not left to die. Wherever we go, we carry death with us in our body. The death that Jesus died. That in this body also life might reveal itself. The life that Jesus lives. For continually, while still alive, we are being surrendered into the hands of death. In other words, this poor pot of ours takes a licking every now and then. But we can never lose sight of the fact that this is the message of the cross. It's disciplining. Remember the Greeks came to our blessed Lord on one occasion shortly before his death, just about a week before. We do not know what they asked our Lord, but I think we can guess it from the answer that our Lord gave. I think the Greeks said to our Lord, if you stay here in this land and with this people, you will suffer death. Why not leave here? Come to Athens. We have never killed any of our wise men except Socrates, and we've regretted ever since that we gave him that hemlock juice. They must have said that because our Lord gave them an answer not from Isaiah but from nature. Unless the seed falling to the ground die, it remaineth alone, but if it die, it springs forth to life. So our pot is subject to a discipline and the kind of crucifixion, and we will follow the earthenware pot of our human nature through the scriptures. What is the condition of enriching the treasure? Emptiness. De-egotization. Eccentration. The great battle the church has to fight today, particularly with us priests and sisters, is the affirmation of the self. And that stands in the way of God ever using us as an instrument. Look at the way, for example, the prophet handled the good woman who was suffering from considerable poverty. The wife of a member of the company of prophets appealed to Elisha. My husband, your servant, has died, she said, and you know what a man he was, and 
He feared the Lord, but a creditor has come to take my two boys and his slaves. Elisha said to her, How can I help you? Tell me what you have in the house. Nothing at all, she said, except a flask of oil. Go out then, he said, and borrow vessels and pots from all your neighbors. Get as many empty ones as you can. And when you come home, shut yourself in with your sons. And pour from the flask into these vessels. And as they are filled, set them aside. She left him and shut herself in with her sons. And they brought her the pots she filled them. And when they were all full, she said to one of her sons, Bring me another pot. There is not one left, he said. And the flow of the oil ceased. Why is it that some of us have more of Christ than others? because Christ cannot get in. The more empty we are, the more he can fill us. And this emptiness, of course, is related to evangelical councils. And apropos of those today, if you have noticed, poverty is in. Chastity and obedience are out. Everyone today loves poverty, particularly for someone else. But the emptying demands the practice of all three evangelical councils. And now what does God intend to do with us as pots? Does he have a plan for us? As a matter of fact, God has perhaps a more perfect plan than we have ever realized. God has two images of each and every one of us, the one he wants us to be and the one we are. In the case of the Blessed Mother, there's only one image. She fulfilled the dream. She was really a dream walking. And as regards the making of the pots, we now come to the prophet Jeremiah. These are the words which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. And there I will tell you what I have to say. So I went down to the potter's house and found him working at the wheel. Now and then a vessel he was making out of the clay would be spoilt in his hands. And then he would start again and mold it into another vessel to his liking. And then the word of the Lord came to me. Can I not deal with you, Israel, says the Lord, as the potter deals with the clay? What the potter intended to do was to make a main vase. If it's expensive, it's a vase. If it's cheap, it's a vase. So here is the potter with the clay and the wheel, and he intends to make the best. 
and the clay somehow or other hardens perhaps too rapidly or doesn't harden sufficiently, and it falls down from the wheel. Does the potter neglect the clay? No, he picks it up and he molds it into another vessel. The vase becomes a vase. God does not abandon us poor pots. He picks us up and makes us, well, to his liking, whatever it happens to be. But we are not abandoned. But he does have an ideal, just the same. Now, what is in the pot of ours, of course, is grace. And here we come to a lesson that God teaches us concerning our treasure. We turn here to the prophet Jeremiah in the 48th verse. All his life long, Moab has lain undisturbed like wine settled on its lees, not emptied from vessel to vessel. He has not gone into exile, therefore the taste of him is unaltered and the flavor stays unchanged. Jeremiah is here describing the way that the Jews made wine. They would pour the grape wine into a vessel, allow it to settle. And when the lees began to form, then the wine would be poured into another vessel. And then after the dregs had settled there, it would be poured into still another and still another and another until there was perfect wine. And God says here of Moab, the people that allowed the Israelites did not allow them to pass through their land. Moab has settled on its lees. It never went into exile. There was no pouring out of a vessel, no change, no taking on of a new challenge. And for that reason, it lost its taste. This is the reason we have suggested the hour, so that we'll not settle on our leaves. The rest of our life we'll consider as dregs. Now we'll begin to be poured from vessel to vessel in order to be enriched with grace. And this is what our blessed Lord, under another simile, took up when he was talking to his apostles the night of the Last Supper. He said, I am the real vine. And my father is the gardener. And every barren branch of mine he cuts away. And every fruiting branch he cleans to make it more fruitful still. So the heavenly father purges us. The figure is changed now from the leaves to the vine. A discipline, a trial a handicap, a cross. Something comes into our life. And why is the pruning done? 
He said to make us more fruitful. And that's why we've asked for this change, for more fruit. Our vines have to be pruned. And we'll be surprised at the richness of the harvest. And then, summing it up, we come to the epistle to the Hebrews, where St. Paul says, you must endure it as discipline. This is the one thing that has passed out of our life, discipline, self-sacrifice. Now notice how what we become if we have not discipline. You must endure it as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Can anyone be a son who is not disciplined by his father? If you escape the discipline in which all sons must share, you are bastards and not true sons. We pay due respect to earthly fathers who disciplined us. Should we not submit even more readily to our spiritual father and so attain life? Come then, stiffen your drooping arms and shaking knees, and keep your steps from wavering, and then the disabled limb will not be put out of joint, but regain its former powers. However you use the analogy, it makes little difference whether it be changing from vessel to vessel so that we do not settle on our lees, whether it be an emptying of ourselves in order that we might be filled, for God's grace stops when we are filled, or whether it be discipline so that we do not become bastards, the cross has to be introduced into our lives. And if we take on the discipline ourselves, the hour. The Lord will not have to empty the vessel so that there be no leaves or dregs. And when we have done this to ourselves, then we'll be prepared to change others. It is when a spiritual life of a priest is transformed that he becomes effective in transforming other lives. Why is it that conversions have stopped in the church? It's because we're not just enthusiastic about being the ambassadors of Christ and the priests of the Heavenly Father, anxious to make sons and daughters for himself. And if we were fully engaged in this life of Christ, we will be constantly looking about for souls. St. James tells us that if we save a soul, we will not lose our own. The potential of conversion now in the church is just as great as ever. But they're not coming to us principally because they're not inspired by us. As Nietzsche said, there are not many good things that one can quote from Nietzsche. But Nietzsche said, if you do not act 
like a man redeemed? How can you get me to believe in a redeemer? And the souls are very often at our doorsteps. I remember in a church where I worked in all about seven or eight years of my life, church in London, I opened up the church door, Epiphany Morning, a cold, heavy London fog. And a limp figure fell in the door. A young woman about 25, 26 years of age. And I said, what are you doing here? She said, where am I, Father? And I said, Father, yes. She said, I used to be a Catholic, but not anymore. Were you drunk? Yes. I said, men drink because they like this stuff. Women drink because they don't like something else. What were you running away from? She said, from three men. And I was involved with all three, and they were beginning to find it out. So I got drunk. What is your name? And pointing to a billboard across the street on the wall of the Cross and Blackwell Jam office, I said, is that your picture over there? Yes, she said, I'm leading lady in that musical comedy. Being very cold from exposure to the London fog, I made a cup of coffee for her. She said, thanks, and I said, no. Come back this afternoon and thank me. She said, I will on one condition that you do not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully not to ask you to go to confession. She said, I want you to promise me again that you will not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully not to ask you to go to confession. She came back that afternoon before matinee. I said, we have a Rembrandt and a Van Dyke painting in this church. Would you like to see them? And as we walked down the middle aisle, I pushed her into a confessional. I did not ask her to go. And then three months later, I gave her her veil as a nun in the convent of perpetual adoration where she is to this very hour. And thus, the wine did not remain so long in the pot. that it was spoiled by the lees. The point I'm trying to make, therefore, is in relationship to our own lives and in relationship to others, we have to change them with discipline. The young are not beyond us. The young are not impressed by what we say. There's only one authority today that is accepted. It is the authority of service. Only the discipline today can command. And when others see our lives different than the rest of men, 
then they will come to us. Because the instinct of the people of our faithful is infallible. As the instinct of the priesthood is infallible. If, for example, in a diocese, the priesthood generally agrees that this particular man is a kook, he is a kook. If only one or two say he's a kook, he isn't. And so with the faithful. The faithful know us. And the number of confessions, penitents that come to us, is an indication of the way they read us. They found that this pot of ours is full of spiritual treasure. And then we'll be able, because we have been disciplined and have enriched the treasure, we'll be able to console the suffering. So many people have said, I can find a priest who can talk only two or three minutes on suffering. Here's a letter that I got from someone in an iron lung. This morning I was thinking about you and the young men at such and such a college in Washington, D.C. A number of them to be ordained in June. While there, I had an opportunity to talk quite a bit with them, and what I heard made me deeply sad. I asked them if they believed a priest should be a victim, as well as one who offers sacrifice. They looked at each other with blank expressions and answered, No. I told them if they were serious about personal holiness, God would begin to purge them and purify them. And they smiled at me sweetly, not wanting to be rude, but it was very plain that they thought I was some relic of another age. One man said that he really didn't think that his vocation was any different from that of any other Christian. What are people like me going to do in decades to come if they have no priest to tell them the infinite value of suffering? They will be doomed to spend their lives in despair and bitterness. We will learn the lesson of suffering by the disciplining of ourselves in this hour and meditating about the passion of Christ, we will understand suffering because we're in that hour. This particular woman who wrote this letter, I met, I was talking in a theater in, in Florida. It was rather a large theater, of about 3,500. And in the dim light, I saw five or six wheelchairs below the stage. At the end of the lecture, I jumped down from the stage to talk to the people in wheelchairs. And over against the wall was something that someone that looked like a Greek statue. A woman in an iron lung, swathed in white, because no part of her body could move except her head. She said, I'm a convert of yours. I said, I've never seen you before. No, she said, it was from something you wrote. How long have you been in this iron lung? Twenty-one years. 
Do you understand suffering? She said, no. I said, I shall write to you every day for six months to try to give you some understanding of it. Well, that she got it is clear from the fact that she understood that every priest was a victim. I have not developed that aspect of the priesthood in this retreat because it is in the book. But we're not just priests. We're victims. Our Lord was not just a priest. He offered himself. That's what we do. And that is why the holy hour is meant to be the sign of our victimhood. So that every day we can take out of time one hour and say, this will belong to the Lord. As a matter of fact, we don't have time for anything else until we've come near this Eucharistic fire. Sure, we've got to empty out pleasures to allow the oil to be poured in, the oil of the Spirit. Then we'll not be settling on the dregs of our life. And we'll really begin to understand the person of Christ and how he summoned us. Poor pots that we are to carry this great treasure. If we have never sought thee, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is thy balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong. But thou wast weak. They rode. But thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me once again for another hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. 
Uh, it doesn't seem to matter what week you join us. There is always something very thought-provoking for you, the listener. And again, I would ask you to bring a friend with you next week. And, uh, you know, this has been a great labor of love for us here at Radio Maria Canada. And we thank you for your both prayerful and financial support. And I want to thank everyone who has been encouraging me over the last few months with uh, the release of the book that I edited entitled The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen anthology. Uh, it's been doing very well on uh, many uh, book reviews and radio interviews. And so uh, it was great to bring Sheen's writings on the cross together in one volume. So uh, please order that today. Again, it's called The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, and it's produced by the good people at Sophia Institute Press. And uh, again, thank you to everyone who has helped uh, promote the book and, of course, shared its contents with the world. Uh, we all need to, uh, of course, have Christ and Him crucified preached to us. Uh, we need to preach Christ and share Christ. And Bishop Sheen does it the best, I think. And so, again, the Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen anthology by Sophia Institute Press. Again, my thanks go out to our good friends at FultonSheen.com for providing these quality audio recordings we've been using on the broadcast. And you can visit them at FultonSheen.com and order your own complete digital library uh, with uh, well over 300 recordings of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's wisdom over a number of years. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.